if you could open up to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse, uh, we're going to just look at verses 1 and 2 today. But before we get there, I just want to give a little bit of a background to the series that we're going to be in. And um, <clears throat> all of these messages between now and the end of May are going to be based on this book of 1 Peter. And we are asking that God would speak to us every single week. There'll be the odd little pause for other things, but essentially we're going to be soaking ourselves, meditating on this book. And since this is the first message, uh, I wanted to just explain some of the themes that we felt God has highlighted for us. We've called the series Hope-Filled Exiles, and we're going to take all these weeks to unpack that. But the tagline that we are going for is hope and guidance for the age that we live in. And I think that you're going to really see that as we go through this book, that Peter is writing to believers and he wants them to know that they are exiles. They are foreigners, they are strangers, they are misfits in this present age. And that that way of seeing yourself or thinking is vital if you're going to understand how to live in this life. And so the Bible, and particularly this book, is abundantly clear that this present age is not our true home. And so sometimes you feel like you don't fit entirely, and it's because this is not your home, it's where you're passing through. We as believers in Jesus are on a journey towards our true home, which is the new heaven and the new earth. And so you could say that the book of 1 Peter is something of a journey guide. It's like a travel book, a guide for this journey, showing us how to live in this age and how to think in this age. And what's particularly important in this book is how to do so with an indestructible hope in spite of hardships, because the people that he is writing to are not having an easy life. They are not hopeful because they have an easy life, but he is writing that they may be hopeful in spite of the life that they have. And so really our prayer is that each one of us would feel God giving us hope and guidance through this book. Now, 1 Peter is a letter, and so if you read a letter, there's a good few questions that are worth asking so that you can understand the context. You need to ask who wrote it. And uh, you don't need to read very far in this book to find out who wrote it because he tells us that he wrote it in the very first word. So Peter is the fisherman who was radically saved and transformed by Jesus, the one who walked and talked and ministered alongside Jesus. That's the one, the eyewitness of Jesus is the one who wrote this letter. And I feel that that's a very helpful thing to remember as we read the letter to remember who wrote it. His life was utterly transformed because he saw the life, he saw the transfiguration, he saw the death, and he saw the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. That's who wrote this letter. And so it's a real privilege to read a letter from that person. And so when he writes, our living hope, I'll try not to get into that, that's next week. He really saw the living Jesus and he wants you to know, I saw him, he's alive. And he rose again. And so he is also the one who, when he had the revelation and said, you are the Christ. And Jesus said, on the rock of that revelation, I'll build my church. That's who's writing to you. This, this man had a revelation of Jesus Christ, our Savior. But I think it's also important to know he's the one who denied Jesus. 
He, he knows what it's like to not pass the test and then to have the Savior restore him. And so when he's writing to those who are enduring suffering and trials and hardship, he's writing as one who didn't pass a trial, but was redeemed by his Savior Jesus. And we listening to one who became an apostle, a sent one of Jesus, and is writing to us, sent ones of Jesus. So that's who wrote the book. Who's he writing to? That's a vital question. Well, he's writing to believers in Jesus that are spread throughout what we would call modern-day Turkey. And these are believers, this is vital to remember, that are diverse in their background and their makeup. They are spread out over a large region, and they had different origins. They had different ethnic roots. They had different languages. They had different customs, religions, and political histories. These people had come from different backgrounds. Some were of Jewish descent. Some were Gentiles who had converted to Judaism and then come to faith in Jesus Christ. And some had been converted from pagan religions and come to faith in Jesus. But now as Peter writes them, and we will see this today, he identifies them as one group of believers in Jesus. Where and when was it written? The apostle is writing from Rome. You find that in the last chapter of the book. And he's writing, writing at about AD 60. He calls Rome Babylon. And the reason he calls Rome Babylon is because he's underlining one of the key themes that we will encounter today. That the people that he's writing to are like God's Old Testament people who were living in exile in Babylon. And he's trying to instruct them as to how to live in that age. Lastly, why is 1 Peter relevant for us today? Well, firstly, it's relevant because it's Scripture. And Scripture is necessary for us. It is sufficient for us. It is inerrant and it's authoritative. So if the Bible says something, we're going to encounter that in the very first sentence of 1 Peter. If the Bible says something, we are under the authority of Scripture. We are not to judge Scripture, but we are to let Scripture speak to us. So why is it relevant? Because it's Scripture. Secondly, I believe it's relevant for us, and we're really going to see this next week uh, in an amazing way. It is so filled with an expansive vision of the glory of our Savior and how He has saved us. And so it keeps coming back to Jesus as we're trying to think about how to be exiles in this present age. He keeps referring back to Jesus. So we're going to get a wonderful vision of Jesus in this book. And thirdly, this letter is important to us or relevant to us because it's written from an apostle to people who, like us, are living in an age that is diverse, is pluralistic, and is at times hostile towards those of faith in Jesus. He's writing to people whose lives aren't all mountaintops, so your lives all mountaintop experiences. He's writing to people who are having mountaintop and valley experiences. And this letter is particularly helpful for us because I believe the age that we're in right now and the age, the, the years to come, we are increasingly living in an age that is hostile to the faith that is the believer in Jesus. And so I believe this is a very helpful book. So I was going to pray at this point, but I think there's been so much praying so far, we should just start preaching. So uh, let's get right into it. Firstly, 
you could read the start of this letter and just skip the first two verses thinking, oh, well, he's just starting his letter. You know, he's kind of saying, how is it? But actually, as you look at this, you realize there is a rich and remarkable greeting here. So let's read this rich, remarkable greeting to these believers and to us now. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This morning I want to take five things out of this passage. And the first thing is just, um, I was struck by the fact that Peter is speaking identity and belonging over these believers before he's done anything else. And so the way that he starts his letter is actually incredibly helpful to us. Right from the outset, before Peter says anything else, he addresses these believers according to their identity and their belonging in Jesus Christ. He, it's almost like he's speaking identity over them. He's, he's saying what is true, but he's calling them to it. He's bringing it to their attention. And this made me think of our own household. This would often happen in our home. Uh, something would be going down, normally in the kitchen. I don't know why everything happens in the kitchen. In, I don't know if that's like it in your home, but the kitchen, maybe it's because there's food there. But uh, Something would be going down between uh, our kids, the siblings, and maybe it would be that the boys were teasing Alex, their younger sister, too much. And uh, rather than being kind and loving or building up, it had just gone over the edge into something else. And if I wanted to change what was happening, I would tend to speak identity over my sons. I would say something like this. Hey, you, even when they were young. You are bowly men, like these little four-year-olds. You're, you're a bowly man. Bowly men don't treat women like that. I, I, I am correcting their action, but what I was actually doing is I was saying, that's not who you are. You acting out of line with who you actually are, your identity. Now, that's not a particularly good analogy, but... It's actually what I see the Apostle Peter doing right at the start of this letter by the way he addresses the people he's writing to. You know, thinking correctly about yourself is vital if you're going to live correctly. And so what he does is he starts by saying, to those who are elect, a few other sentences, and then he says, according to the foreknowledge of God. And what he's wanting to do is right at the start, he's wanting to align their thinking. He's wanting them to skrikvaka and to realize you are the chosen ones of God. And that is in, meant to be in your thinking in everything else I'm going to say. He wants them to know that no matter what their other backgrounds are or what their upbringing is, their primary identity and their sense of belonging is meant to be found in this truth. You are the chosen one of God. You are the elect of God. And so before he says anything else, the apostle is reminding these believers, and by extension he's reminding you and me today, who you are and whose you are. 
He is saying to you, you are the beloved, chosen child of God. That is who you are, and it is also whose you are. You have a Father who predestined you. If you're a Christ follower, you are a beloved child of God. This isn't a metaphor. It is a reality. I just want to give you two verses. John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right, some translations say the privilege, he gave the right to become children of God. And the Apostle John in his epistle later on in 1 John 3 verse 1 in the NIV says, how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called the children of God, exclamation mark, and that is what we are. Brothers and sisters, the apostles, the early church, were fixated with this reality that Yahweh had made them children. They weren't just God's people, they were in his family. It was the identity of the believer in Jesus. And so before the apostle has said anything, before he's given any teaching or commands or instruction, he prefaces everything with this knowledge. You're the beloved chosen child of God. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that he, he wanted them to know it and, he, and God wants you to know this? Why is that so important? Well, the truth about who they are and whose they are is meant to shape everything. It's meant to color everything else in your life. You see, according to the Bible, we're to live out of who we are. We're not trying to live in order to be someone. But rather, we're living out of the reality of what God has already done for us. So we don't obey God or Scripture in the hope of becoming someone. No, no, no. Rather, we obey in the Christian life because of who we are already. Because of our identity. Tim Keller famously contrasted the gospel versus religion, saying religion says, obey to be accepted. You, you need to follow this standard. If you, can, if you can reach this, you'll be accepted. That's religion, a list of rules, do's and don'ts. The gospel says, you're accepted, you're loved, so you obey. And I see this right here. Our Christian life is a response to what God has done. And our world is awash with identity issues, identity politics, you could say. You know, identify with this or that identity, sexuality, ethnicity, ideology, with this cause or this group or this sense of belonging, and then live out of that identity or group think. Our world is full of that, but as Christ followers, we are called right at the start of this letter to live out of a primary identity that is you are chosen and loved by God. You know, if you try to live out, if you try to find your identity and your belonging and your purpose in anything or anyone that is not eternal, that is not unchanging, that is not the enduring, entirely loving and trustworthy God of the Bible. If you seek to find your identity or belonging and purpose in anything else, it will fail. The apostle wanted their identity and their belonging 
wanted their purpose to be rooted in who they are and who they belong to. And I don't know about you this morning. I don't know how you came to church. I don't know if you're a Christ follower or whether you're just on a journey of faith. Maybe someone invited you today. But maybe this is, I would preach for you only today to say that I don't know what you've been looking for identity and belonging in, but the only identity and belonging that will ever serve you for the rest of your life and eternity is an identity and a belonging found in Jesus Christ. It's exhausting trying to find your identity in other things, and it is utterly hopeless, ultimately. It will fail you, but Jesus is faithful to the very end. And if you want to give your life to Jesus, I want to pray with you later so that you could know that you're the beloved of God and your whole life will be colored with that news forever and ever. Amen. And if you are a believer in Jesus, I want to say to you, there is nothing more important today than that you grasp. I agree with Nathan when Nathan shared what he shared with you earlier about that God wants to love on you today. I I just said that's the central part of my message, really, that you to know I really am the loved one of God because everything else in this book and in our lives is meant to flow from that truth and that revelation. Amen. The second point from this passage unpacks that a little bit. You and I are the elect of God. And so the apostle calls uh, believers in Jesus, even believers in Jesus in this letter, from very diverse backgrounds, he calls them the elect. And it's really helpful for us to see how this doctrine is used in Scripture Because how this doctrine is used in Scripture should shape how we use it. And so we need to look at how the Apostle Peter uses this doctrine so that we can know how to use this doctrine of election. You know, it's truly sad to me that the doctrine of election, which is taught throughout Scripture in the Old Testament and New Testament, which is meant to encourage us and assure us, bring us comfort and peace, which is meant to fortify and encourage us in sharing the gospel, which is meant to be a catalyst for worship, has been reduced to a topic for heated debate. It's sad. Yet the apostle calls these diverse believers, and by extension calls us, the chosen, the elect of God, according to the foreknowledge or the predestination of God, verse 2. And he marvels at how the only way this could have happened would have been the the work of the true iron God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We can see that in verse 2. And how our election is for a purpose. It's so that we would obey Jesus Christ. And he then bursts into praise, which we'll get to next week, from chapter, uh, from verse 3 all the way through to uh, chapter 2, verse 3. He bursts into praise that God has elected us. And then he calls us to live as those who are called and chosen by God. Brothers and sisters, this doctrine of election, God meant it to be a joy and a comfort and an assurance and a and a catalyst for worship. And so the fact that it isn't for many people makes me think someone else is involved. 
It makes me think that the devil's involved in making this such an intellectual minefield for us. Brothers and sisters, if you've believed in Jesus, Scripture is unashamed to say you're the chosen one of God. This wasn't something you did. It's not something you deserved. It's what God has done because he decided to pour his love into your heart. Last, uh, recently you, you studied the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 to 6 says that God chose us before he made the world. So you didn't do anything. He chose you to make you holy and blameless. The motivating force behind that choosing was his love so that you could be adopted as his child so that you would have the identity as the child of God and you would belong to God. And that verse 11 of that passage says, all of this was according to the purpose of his will. And verse 12, it was so that he would get praise and glory. What an amazing doctrine election is. J.R. Packer wrote this. This divine choice is an expression of free and sovereign grace. For it is unconstrained and unconditional. It is not merited by anything in those who are its subjects. God owes sinners no mercy of any kind, only condemnation. It is a wonder and a matter of endless praise that he should save any of us. And doubly so when his choice involved the giving of his one and only son so that he could bear our sin for the elect. Now, I understand that people have grappled with monogistic and synergistic understanding of salvation. Is it one-handed salvation or two-handed salvation? And we've got five points and they've got five points. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. But lots of you do. I know that limited atonement and unlimited atonement and unlimited limited atonement are all important things. But if you're not careful, you miss the whole point. This doctrine is used in Scripture in a very specific way. And the way it's used in Scripture should define the way we use it. It's used to encourage you that you are the beloved child of the living God if you've believed in Jesus. And so it makes me wonder, as I said earlier, Who's really behind all the verbal jousting between Christians? Whose fingerprints are on that? Because it's distracted us from the real importance of this doctrine. Worship and thanks to the God who chose us. Amen? You guys are not very Pentecostal. Can I hear an amen? amen. Hallelujah. The Apostle Peter is writing to believers, and by extension, he's writing to us. And he's seeking to frame his whole letter. He's seeking to inform them how to live in this age by calling them what they are. Hey, you're a bowly boy. Hey, you're a child of the living God. You were chosen and loved. That must be in our thinking. God wants you to know that. He wants you to know that he loves you with an indestructible love that originated, that started before creation. And that is the vital awareness you need to have as you try to live out your faith in a hostile world. And so my prayer for you this morning is that you would have a revelation 
that you would have a breakthrough of awareness and understanding of this truth. It would go from here into here, and it would blow your spiritual fuse, that you would be overawed and lost in wonder with the God who chose you, that you would delight in the fact that God chose you, and you would thank and praise him, which is the only appropriate response, that you would live in the good of this knowledge that God chose you, that you would live your whole life as a response to this fact that God chose you, and that whatever sufferings and trials you're facing right now or will face in the future, you'd be held by this knowledge that you've had the love of God set on you, and it is a love that is indestructible, as Romans 8, verses 31 to 39 make so clear. Amen. My third point is the plural that he calls the, this group of elect. It's not just you individual are elect, but you plural are elect. He says this, to those, that's plural, who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And he's speaking this over a very diverse group of people. He's, he's calling a very diverse group of people singular, that they're a singular group. And you know, we often make the mistake of reading the Bible through individualistic eyes, and so we miss things that are actually right in front of us. The Apostle Peter, as he speaks to this diverse group of people, who we'll see in chapter 2, who once were not a people, as he speaks over them, he's telling them that they have become a people of God by the sovereign work of God. You can see it in verse 2, God the Father foreknew them, Jesus Christ saved them by his spilt blood, and the Holy Spirit is the one who is sanctifying them and making them holy so that they live the rest of their lives for obedience to Jesus Christ. It's almost like Peter, having addressed this mixed audience of former Jews, pagan Gentiles, as he addresses them as God's chosen people, it's almost like if you read the text, it's like he's rocking back in wonder and thinking, how did this happen? And instantly he knows only God could have done this. Only God could have created a people out of these people. And that's why we're going to look at it next week. But he bursts into worship because he realizes only God could have done this. Only God could have brought unity in diversity as he thinks about these people. And so believer in Jesus, your primary identity is no longer in your ethnicity or in anything else. Rather, your identity and my identity, our sense of belonging, ought to be rooted in the wonder of our salvation and our Savior. You and I are now God's chosen people. More than that, what God's done in saving you is He's not just saved you individually, but He's joined you to a worldwide family of people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, and He has made a people out of people who didn't exist as a people before. He's made a new people his family. And so if you're a believer in Jesus, you and I have been made one new man in Christ Jesus in the language of Ephesians. And I pray that you would lean into and you would live out of this glorious truth. He wrote to a very diverse group of people from all these different backgrounds and he called them the elect, the chosen people of God. And my prayer is that you would lean into and you'd live out of that. I pray that we would be a church in South Africa 
that expresses the wonder of this glorious unity in diversity through faith in Jesus more and more in the years to come. Amen. Fourthly, you are elect. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. You're elect. You have been chosen to not fit in. You're elect exiles. It's like, I got chosen. Yay. For what? You know, you must always wait to know what you've been chosen for. So you might have rejoiced in that, I'm chosen. But then straight away he brings us down to reality and he says, you've been chosen to not fit in. Ah. He calls them the elect exiles. And we're going to come back to this theme in the third message of our series uh, in more depth. But for now, I just want to say that the apostle frames everything he's going to say to them with these two truths. You are chosen and you don't fit in here. You're an exile. You, you belong and you don't belong in this world. You belong to me, but you don't really belong here. And we need both of those awarenesses if we're going to live hope-filled lives in this present age. And so one of the really big themes in 1 Peter is that you're a misfit. Just tell the person next to you, you're a misfit. You can add dude or dudes if you want to. You don't fit in. And I think you know as a Christ follower with this feeling, sometimes you feel it more acutely than others. Maybe you're in a setting and there's many unbelievers around you and you just feel, I just don't feel like I fit in here. Sometimes we prayed for people to be healed earlier. In this life, there is still suffering, sickness, pain, and death. And it doesn't feel right to us. I did a funeral just recently, uh, a young man, 20-year-old, who took his life with a gun. His dad came to faith in Jesus through that. Hallelujah. But I stood up at that funeral, about 180 absolutely unchurched people, and I stood up and I just said to them, there is nothing I can say that will make this better. And so I'm not even going to try, because this should not happen. This feels wrong. This is wrong. There's that sense when you face injustice or real suffering, there's something wrong, and we know what's wrong. Sin, the fall. And so when you feel like you don't fit in, that's why Peter says, you're elect, you're chosen, and you exiles. You're a misfit in this present age. This world is not our eternal home. And so this world will not always understand us. We will not always feel like we fit in. And it definitely won't always like what we believe if we believe the Bible. And so by calling them exiles, people, Peter is helping them to think straight. He's setting their expectations appropriately. He's helping them to understand some of what they will endure in this life. And that's why we're calling this book a little bit of a journey guide. Showing us how to live in an age that we don't really fit in with an indestructible hope because of the certainty of the age to come and our Savior's choosing of us. So brothers and sisters, it is vital that you live as a believer in Jesus with the realization that you are in exile. We are passing through this age to an eternal hope and that awareness should change our priorities, it should change our plans, it should, ch it should change our prayers.
when he calls them exiles, Peter is actually using Old Testament language that used to apply to God's people Israel. He's drawing on their Jewish heritage, and when he calls them exiles of the dispersion or the diaspora, he's referring to the, the Old Testament people who were exiled in Babylon. They were living in a foreign country where they didn't belong. They weren't able to worship their Lord and Savior because they weren't in Jerusalem, but they were still called to follow him and to love him. Sounds a little bit like us. We're not in the new heaven and the new earth, but Jesus is our king and we serve him now even though there'll be a future reality to come. And so Paul is drawing out this Old Testament language and what is remarkable in Peter is that he is applying the language that used to be used only of the Israelites and he's applying it to Jews and Gentiles who've believed in Jesus. And he's calling them the new people of God. Why is Peter doing this? I believe Peter's view of people had been so transformed on that rooftop that's recorded in Acts chapter 10, where God spoke to him through a revelation. And then as he got down from that rooftop after hearing God speak to him and he went to preach the gospel in a Gentile person's house and he saw the Holy Spirit fall on Gentiles and the whole house to get saved, Peter's whole view of people was transformed. People, Peter now believed that those who believe in Jesus, regardless of their background or their ethnicity, are now God's chosen people. And so when he writes to this diverse group of people in modern-day Turkey, he calls them the elect exiles, the chosen people of God. He's saying, we together are God's people. Why is that important for us? Well, it's important because the gospel creates a community of faith. Amen? A non-racial multicultural, class-crossing people who have got nothing in common except faith in Jesus. And because you're living in South Africa today, that should give you and I hope. Our country is more divided today than it was in 1994. It is more polarized today. There is more hopelessness today than there was then. There is no other hope for reconciliation than Jesus Christ. And the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be a beacon of hope for the world around. Our unity isn't based on that we all support province. Our unity isn't based on anything else but that we've put our faith in Jesus. There's going to be more to come in this book on that theme. Lastly, just want to say that I only got the microphone late today, but I'm aware of the time. The fifth thing that I want to look at in our passage is the purpose for election. So this post, the apostle has drawn our attention to our identity, he's drawn our attention to our belonging, but in verse 2 he also draws our attention to God's purpose in choosing us, in electing us. And so he says that we've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And from elsewhere in Scripture, we know that God's purpose in election 
is for the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians 1 verse 12, that God's purpose and election was to pour out his love on us, Ephesians 1 verse 4 and 5. But here Peter points to two other things behind the purpose of God's choosing us. Firstly, he says, I'm reversing, re reversing the order, God's purpose in electing us was that he could save every person who trusts who hides under the blood of Jesus. Again, he's using an Old Testament picture of the Passover. And if you know the, the biblical story of the Passover, the first Passover, all those who stayed inside and stayed behind the doorpost that had been sprinkled with blood, they were saved on that night because they trusted that the blood that was sprinkled, they were told to do that, they trusted that they would be protected. And Peter's using that uh, history and that he's using that metaphorically to say that those who trust in Jesus are trusting in his sprinkled blood over us. That the judgment of God passes over you if you've trusted in Jesus. If you have believed in his life, death, and resurrection, you are spared the wrath of God and you are saved. And so God's purpose is that you would trust in the blood of Jesus, that you would trust in Jesus and be saved by Jesus. And secondly, he says, God's purpose and election is that you would then live out the rest of your life in obedience to Jesus. God didn't just choose you, yay, let's go have ice cream. God chose you so that you'd obey Jesus. And so God's choosing of us is meant to transform how we live. If you've believed in Jesus, we'll see the evidence that you've believed in Jesus because there is fruit in keeping with repentance. If you've believed in Jesus, you could say you've been saved from sin, but you've been saved for something. You've been saved for obedience to Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, if you love me, you'll obey me in John. And so believers in Jesus, we are chosen so that we would believe in Jesus and that we would live the rest of our lives in obedience to Jesus. I hope that these first two verses of this book have just whet your appetite for what's to come. The scriptures are so alive. God wants to shape our lives. And as I bring this to a close, I want to finish with the last thing in 1 Peter 2. The apostle doesn't just, he's not just writing a little salutation. He's not just writing, how's it? He is pronouncing a blessing over them. And he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is so much more than just a, a greeting. He's actually pronouncing blessing. He's speaking blessing over them. He wants these believers in Jesus to experience more and more of the grace and the mercy and the goodness of the God who chose them. He wants them to go through life knowing I have had the love of God showered into my heart and life and living out a peaceful response to that. And this is my prayer for you today, that you would have a fresh revelation of God's immeasurable love and grace to you in choosing you. That you would thank Him for it. That you would worship Him for it. That you would live your whole life as a response to His choosing of you. 
And that because you live like that, you would experience a peace that transcends all understanding. Regardless of what you face in this life, regardless of your circumstances in life, you would have the shalom of God over your life. Because you know, I am chosen and I am loved by God. And that you would live the rest of your life in the richness of that awareness. That that would shape and transform everything you do. Amen.